Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Crude Report. This is a regular podcast from Argus Media, where we cover issues and events pertaining to the crude oil markets. Today's Thursday, June 30th, and I'm Stephen Jones, Senior Vice President covering oil market strategy. With me today is my partner, Bruce Fullen, a Vice President who covers America's crude oil markets. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. Hey, thanks, Stephen, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. I appreciate your attention. Very good, man. Today, we're going to talk about the recent developments and coming expectations about U.S. crude production. As many market analysts and those of us that track the market pretty close have noted, the U.S. recently hit milestone of 12 million barrels a day of output post-recovery, post-COVID recovery. Total output is on the rise. There are lots of stakeholders that are wondering how much further might the output increases go. And with the recent tightness in the crude oil markets and the threat of supply sanctions and OPEC limited spare capacity and the market generally being perceived as short crude supply and the record high prices, there's a lot of focus on whether or not the U.S. can continue to increase its output with these record high prices. How much further might it go? And Bruce and I, uh, Bruce, we've had a lot of discussions with upstream market participants, and a lot of the feedback has been concerns around supply chain issues and cost of drilling, but yet we're starting to see rig count increases and things of that nature. What was your take when we met with a lot of these producers? Where are some of the hard limits, and how are we kind of anticipating the upstreamers overcoming these issues? Correct. What you have to step back is the limitations for producing is very different today than it was, let's say, pre pre-COVID or a couple of years ago. So some of the things up front is we're seeing a lot of small cap and private equity companies entering into the space of drilling in the Permian. And that's for various different reasons. Um, The smaller companies have a little bit less ESG obligations. They maybe didn't get hit with them pre-COVID as some of the other major companies have, and that they have the ability to spend their capital and uh, investments with a little bit more focus on the drilling side of things. This is quite different where we're seeing a lot of capital discipline into areas of the major companies who are forced with the obligatory obligations of whether they're buying back stock, whether they're paying down debts, those type of things. And then another major thing that I just kind of wanted to touch on briefly is, you know, yes, we're seeing rigs that are coming up. I mean, as you mentioned, and the rig count is increasing. But remember, during COVID, we laid down a lot of rigs. And when we lay those down and you lay and you lay off the the frack crews and you lay off the people to get them back online, it's tough. We're short people out in the field. We're short pipe. We're short sand. We're short all kinds of resources that they need to get these things up and going. So you've got a supply issue problem on actually being able to do the EMP for these small site companies or the companies out there. So they're a little constraint, whether it's capital restraint for the big companies or their constraint on actually getting the supplies or the actual rigs themselves out there. So we are limited on the growth, not so much, and it's not a problem of with these high prices of drilling more. It's not an economic problem. It's a supply problem. Is well, what put. Name. well put. And I guess one of the things that we picked up on, Bruce, and a lot of discussions with Mark participants is the adherence to the budget discipline that many of the larger producers had originally inked their plans around and are living up to that financial discipline that they're obliged to to the financial sector 
than their equity stakeholders, right? So what I caught hint of is that some of these larger producers are actually looking at bringing in smaller producers through production sharing arrangements or other potentials to allow some of the leases to continue to drill despite their own inherent budget limitations. So that is that does seem to be providing a bit of incremental output due to the high price incentives and trying to overcome some of that financial sector imposed financial discipline to some extent. Yeah, and when you're looking at it, we've seen or heard of break-evens low in, in the Delaware and Midland plays as low as $30, right? So when you're talking $100 plus crew prices, obviously there's the economics for it to be there. But when you sit there and say, okay, if we should we drill another well or participate in a carbon capture program, well, you're executing your discipline in an area that is not necessarily going to aggressively grow production. In other mm-hmm. words, you've got other obligations out there beyond just drilling, and therefore those obligations do leak down into softening the sharp rise of production that we would think we would see. I mean, had this been pre-COVID at $120, it would have been massive quick drilling, and we would have had a lot of a sharp rise in it, but that's just not what we're seeing now, is it? I I guess to be clear on low 30s number for some of the break-evens, that's supply chain problems and other things are still true hard limits on allowing some of the incremental production to rise at this point in time. I guess the point being, how far can the rise in output ultimately be achieved through the balance of the year? And I guess just to share some information with our listenership and our core client group here on the podcast, current milestone that we passed through 12 million barrels a day of U.S. total output, good portion of that continues to be the rise from the Permian in particular. But we would expect to exit this year upwards of 12.4 million barrels a day of total U.S. crude output. In 2023, if the high price is sustained and we don't have recessionary impacts and cost runaways and the investment plans continue as a lot of the producers are directly laying out, 2023 looks pretty positive with almost another million barrels a day of increased output on top of 2022 exit output. So we could be upwards of 13.5 million by the end of 2023. And Bruce, you and I talked about this in the past. All the incremental output beyond where we are now with U.S. crude refiners already maxed out on throughput, these increases directionally lend itself to a barrel for barrel of increased output being a barrel for barrel for increased export, right? Oh, absolutely. So the thing is, when you look at like tight oil balances in the pad three or the southern part of the United States, we're saturated. In other words, all the light WTI, WTL, Eagle Fur type of barrels are consumed by the refineries. And then what we're seeing is the excess of this being exported. And they're doing three, sometimes as much as four million barrels a day of exports coming out of the U.S. Gulf Coast. And so basically every single barrel that you do see that goes above this, we're just going to see it exported. There's no place to consume it. Our refining is full when it comes to light, sweet barrels in the United States. We don't need any more for our refining system. So those are going to go to places around the world. Asia buys quite a bit of WTI or WTL, uh, condensate types barrels, but so is Europe. So the thing is, we're going to continue to see those barrels backfill, but it's not a flip of the switch to go ahead and fill the world's demand or offset, in some cases, some of the impacts that we're seeing out of Russia. Yeah. 
And we don't know where that's going to go. So for Russia, if we're trying to reduce two, three million barrels a day of European dependency on that, we're not going to be able to rise quick enough to backfill two or three million barrels a day of production. On light for light. On yeah. light for light. And so it's just, it's going to continue. And as a result of that, I mean, we're seeing prices remain high. We're seeing things like in the U.S. Gulf Coast, LLS, uh, WTI Houston barrels, those prices are still remaining to a dollar to a dollar fifty over the Cushing price, which signals we're going to continue to export our crude into the global market. So we're still seeing strong export demand coming from the United States. It's signaled by our prices. So basically, most of the increase is going to come in the light sweep category from the Permian, some from the Eagleford. The outlook for Bakken is still strong, but not major contribution to large rises in output. And there's been a lot of talk about some of the deep water Gulf Mexico projects coming on stream this year that's offsetting some of the decline of some of the more larger fields in the Gulf of Mexico. So all told, the U.S. is pretty well positioned for light, sweet rise in output. Can you share with us a little bit about some of the pricing considerations? Because before all the, the shale boom, if you will, there was pipeline constraints, and we saw steep inland discounts relative to Gulf Coast market prices. Since then, we've seen significant pipeline debottlenecks and expansions and improved infrastructure. Do we anticipate any problems seeing the total increase approaching ultimate number of 13.4, 13.5 million barrels a day? Because my recollection, pre-COVID, we were approaching numbers that were in the 12.9 million barrels a day. Now we're talking about another half million barrels on top of the previous demonstrated maximum U.S. crude production. Any infrastructure issues or concerns? They're minor. I mean, this is not the infrastructure problems we've had before in the past. So the U.S. was on track for this Permian area to grow significantly pre-COVID. And so a lot of the developmental projects in the infrastructure for pipelines, regardless, they were in construction and some of them were completed, like the Wing to Webster pipeline that runs from Permian down into the Houston area. That bring an additional million barrels of pipeline capacity in the market. Is it all being used now? We have spare capacity right now. And again, I, the reason we see it is the price signals are very clear. The price between Midland and the price between Houston on the Gulf Coast varies only perhaps maybe 50 cents of the WTI. So that's just saying take go from Midland down to Houston. The premium difference of so the price difference is only 50 cents. In other Basically words, Basically the cost of transportation. The cost of transportation and transportation, it has to be very competitive because we have a lot of extra capacity gotcha. in there. Gotcha. So the price relationships are very stable. We wouldn't anticipate bottlenecks in that regard. Can you kind of share with our listeners where we see the physical trade price relationships relative to the exchange prices and what those developments look like right now? I mean, because a lot of people have assumed there's been a fair amount of hedging mm-hmm. and what that might imply in terms of contract open interest on the financial markets relative to the physical markets. These barrels are being produced in tight conditions on the cost of supply and whatnot. How are producers approaching the placement of their barrels from a price standpoint? So from pricing standpoints, one mechanism the market often does is they trade on indexes. And I mean big global indexes like whether it's Dubai, ICE Brent, or WTI Cushing, the NYMEX here in Houston. 
And we've still seen pretty strong instruments or pretty strong usage in these areas of open interest and people trading them as the prices move higher and lower. But we are seeing a lot of extreme volatility in these. We get price movements that go up five or ten dollars just day over day, and it's, it creates a lot of difficulty in trying to capture stabilized pricing when you have that. So people are over there trading those big instruments as the prices are shooting up and down on a daily basis with all the headline news. But also what's very interesting to watch is we've kind of got record open interest in these swap products. For the CME, for example, there's a swap in Houston or a swap in Midland on WTI, and the open interest in those is significantly high. And so we're kind of seeing record high numbers of people saying, hey, let me hedge in my production at these levels. Now, the open interest, even though we're at record high levels, could actually be even significantly much higher and posed to go higher up in the future. But what we're seeing is a lot of people second guessing when you're drilling these programs that we have what we call steep backwardation into the curve. So when you look at Cushing or iSprint, when you can see 100 to 120 dollars on the front, a couple of years down the curve, it's $70. So if you drill a barrel or start drilling a program today, you may only, if you try to hedge it, capture the $70 in the back, not the whole $120, because it takes time to drill a well, to get it online, to get the permitting. So that actually kind of is a little bit of a barrier, but so, so regardless, that, it's still healthy. That, in essence, puts some back pressure on the rate of over-exuberance and over-drilling to that extent, because... That forward curve really is the market sentiment of what the future production could be worth, right? Absolutely. And so the ability to bring prompt barrels on is somewhat constrained by that mid-cycle pricing of the backward-dated curve, meaning the future's prices are lower than today's prompt prices. Absolutely. It's it's signaling there's a lot of volatility in the front. In other words, there's just a lot of uncertainty out there. People don't know. If the warm Russia is going to do it, what supply area goes up? And with that unstable feeling, it just drives the price up. Which I guess the key takeaway is that that further emphasizes the need for production discipline on drilling plans and expectations around rising output. And that's, I think, the guardrails, the gutters, if you will, on what's keeping our production outlook somewhat managed in the current projections. So, Bruce, thanks for joining me for this conversation around where we are, having reached a milestone on U.S. crude production continuing to increase. I guess the key takeaway is that uh, we are going to see extended rise in output, but it's going to be very measured, very disciplined pace, with ongoing extenuous pressures on the producers uh, to manage their budgets accordingly in a very tight supply chain for all the cost of materials and labor and things of that nature in particular in the Permian and Eagleford. So, Bruce, thanks again. And for our listeners, please join us again for another podcast for The Crude Report. This is Stephen Jones signing off for today. Thank you. Thank you.